Hey, kids, do you like wrestling? Well, we like wrestling, too. We are Shake Them Ropes here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Myself and Chris Novembrino kind of doing a lazy river of wrestling criticism, going through the news and whatever happened in stateside television wrestling. And also, you know what? Sometimes we just like to watch old stuff and talk about that, too. Love for you to give us a listen. If you haven't already, we are Shake Them Ropes here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome to the good, the bad, and the hungry, also known as the good, the bad, and the final countdown. Thank you, God, Tony Khan. My name is Tyler Fornes. With me today is Fred Moreland. And if you are listening, Forbidden Door is over and was one of the best shows of the year. And I am excited to talk to Mr. It's Juicy himself. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. I am very juicy thanks to uh, local allergens just ruining my face. But other than that, I'm great. Uh, What a hell of a show. Oh, this was a tremendous show. And I I think we should start here as I feed Odia banana because the hungry dog has been so good while I record all day today. Um, Let's talk big picture because this was obviously a massive success. It was announced by Tony Khan as the number one draw box office draw of any completed AEW show to date at 1.2 million US dollars. And obviously all in is going to top that. We already know it's a past 8 million. As far as a live gate is concerned, the pay-per-view buys were above double or nothing, which is above 140, 150,000. It is. That means it also surpassed last year's forbidden or, which is about 125, 130. If I remember correctly, Fred, I think this needs to move to at minimum an MLS soccer stadium where you can fit 30,000 people. I think we're at that point now. Yeah, definitely. Um, as my laptop fan, fan tries to take me to outer space. Uh, but yeah, I think they need to be looking for something in the twenty to 30,000 range next year uh, in a uh, suitable market, of course. I don't think you're going to be filling that in Louisville or something, you know. Um but yeah, this was uh, this was amazing. This was a fantastic atmosphere and a great financial success. Um, so just remember that the next time you hear from people that uh, AW is not mainstream enough for those fictional people, you know, fans that are made up at this, that exist solely in people's heads. Um, it just you know, it, there's evidence proving that what AW does works, and um, it's very silly to turn around and pretend that evidence doesn't exist. Yeah, it is. Look, this was phenomenal. This is an 11 out of 10 show for me. I, I, there are so many little things that we are going to talk about throughout this show that are, that just set it apart completely. What did you rate it, Fred? Because you are notoriously stingy with your show ratings. (laughs) Am I? Uh, I would 10 out of 10 on this. I thought this was uh, one of the best shows ever, probably in the 20 best shows, uh, if I'm playing it very safe. Uh, 
I almost guarantee to be in my top 10 all time that I've seen. Yeah. I, I think it's in the discussion for the greatest American pay-per-view of all time, yeah. potentially the greatest show of all time. It's going to de- really be determined based on how you view the top end of these matches. Um, some people are throwing five stars at the 10 man tag, obviously Omega Osprey and your mileage is going to vary just on how great those matches were. And especially when we talk about uh, Danielson and Okada, mm. all of those things combined, like it's your mileage is going to vary a little bit. And at that point it's semantics. Cause this is one of the greatest American pay-per-views ever. And what's hilarious about it is it took place in Canada. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's either this or um, Canadian Stampede is the best uh, Canadian pay-per-view ever. I'm sure that this probably is much better than Canadian Stampede as a whole, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the atmosphere, I don't know if it ever got as close or close to that, uh, the main event of Canadian Stampede with a fantastic multi-man with Heart Foundation and the crowd absolutely losing their minds. Uh, mm-hmm. But it got pretty damn close at several points on the show. Uh, this crowd uh, definitely helped with the vibes of the show. They were super into it, and uh, it was a tremendous success. I think we can credit the crowd being so good to like the eight to ten uh, voices of wrestling contributors who were in the crowd. Shout out to all of you guys! You brought the heat. Let's. Uh, <laughs> how do you want to go about this? Do you should we start pre-show and then go all the way through? Do you just want to like focus on the top stuff and then we can? go through the rest of it uh because i mean i'd rather we spend our our high energy moments on you know the osprey omega match and the 10 man in the main event and anything else that really catches our eye (laughs) rather than you know like spending early time on athena you know versus billy starks all right well let's start at the top and work our way down brian danielson taps out kazuchiko okada in less than 30 minutes uh, just an absolutely brilliant finish. And we found out later that Brian Danielson wrestled the back half of that match. So he basically about 20 he minutes um, of that match with a broken right forearm. And I was, I didn't want to ask this in the slack. Cause I'm like, I'm watching this match. When, like, when did Danielson hurt his arm? Okada didn't mm-hmm. really attack it. And it, Okada goes after the head and neck. Cause obviously with the rainmaker, yeah. And then Danielson's like not using his arm. What is going on here? And then you find out in the post-show presser that he ended up uh, breaking his arm and believed to be that first Okada elbow drop. When this, this show was cursed with bad elbow drops um, that CM Punk <laughs> got hit in his gimmick by an elbow drop by Satoshi. Bags. Yeah. <laughs> what a line by Taz. Taz was phenomenal. Taz is wonderful. Moment. We're going to talk more about that as time goes on. Oh, in that angle, man. We'll get to it, but Taz in that angle was... All-time stuff. Um, But this match was phenomenal, and it started off really really slow, and I'll say this. I get why this was the main event. I understand why you want to... You're billing this as a real dream match. This should have gone on before Omega and Osprey. The crowd was shot. They tried. You could tell that they were trying <laughs> to get up for these big spots, but that Omega and Osprey match it drained them completely. And yeah. when you're building a card, I think it really took something out of it for me. And I believe I can speak for a lot of other people who f- would have felt the same way. It didn't do anything for me. I was not 
taken aback by the crowd not being into it. I was so focused on we're getting to watch Danielson versus Okada that I don't think the crowd really mattered for me at all because in my head, this match is just, it's just, just great. It's fantastic. And, but I do think that as far as structuring this show, I thought they did themselves a disservice by having Omega Osprey go on before it. Yeah, I mean, you can say that. I think there's a big old asterisk on this discussion, though, and that asterisk is the Danielson injury. Uh, it's really hard to say what this match could have been if he hadn't have spent, uh, I think he said, the last 10 minutes uh, with a broken arm, uh, or what he believes is a broken arm. Um, I, I have to think. I still went four and three quarters on it. I thought this match was great. And I, I, I actually think it helps that all of a sudden Danielson is trying to beat Okada with one arm and gets him to tap out with one arm. And I think that story is so much better. And it's an unintentional, unintended consequence. Um, And I, I talk about that a lot within the context of football, but when something happens, that's unintentional. You can, you can benefit or have a negative outcome from it. Obviously having Danielson out for six to eight weeks stinks, but he tapped out Okada without a functioning right arm. Okada's tapped out one time since coming back from excursion. That was the G1 block final against Shinsuke Nakamura in 2015. Shout out Chris Samson for that info. That like that just helps grow the legend of Brian Danielson. It really emphasizes how great of a technical wrestler he is that he was able to do that. And I think all those little nuanced things, Fred, as you reposition your camera, like I think you're about to do something goofy. Um, it's, it makes it better. And I thought, I thought him working around that helped the match. And could it have been something? It was probably supposed to be something different, but it didn't matter. It ended up being arguably better for the injury. And nobody wants to see anybody get injured. But sometimes you have to take the wins when you can get them. And I thought this was a huge win for AEW, Brian Danielson. And you know what? You can even call this a win for Okada because now he's going to get a huge payoff, arguably in the Tokyo Dome, where he's going to get to beat him one, two, three with the Rainmaker. Yeah, I personally thought that it... um... I thought it was uh, it hurt the match in terms of quality. Now I do think it sets up sets up a great storyline down the road where uh, they run this back and Danielson gets to talk all the trash he can think of about how he did this with one arm, um, you know, and Okada will, you know be motivated to prove that it was a fluke. Uh, but I thought that uh, I thought that this was a very good match. I don't think it was like a, a great match. You know, I thought this was a solidly four star match. Uh, nothing wrong with that, but I thought it was uh, just not, you know, just not a super high level. I, I thought it was a little disappointing compared to the unreasonable expectations I had coming in, given who was in the match. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it fell a bit short of that. And a lot of the blame for that can be put on the injury. I think the the finishing stretch felt kind of weird and not quite expected i mean it's very danielson to win with kind of a shock submission but still the the flow didn't feel right i guess to me and um, of course some of this may have been the fact that i lost power during the original showing of this show so maybe i'm just uh you know all big mad or something but yeah that's where i stand on it look i i I say this with love fred you're a hater like (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I, I do think that the unreasonable expectations and the slow methodical pace, I was a little annoyed by the pace, but at the end of the day, this is a lot of how uh, Okada main events build. And I thought it was different than a, like a lot of other Okada main events where you just feel like the beginning doesn't matter. I felt like Danielson was attacking the arm, obviously because of the rainmaker and ended up playing in the finish. And I mm-hmm. thought the connective tissue between the beginning portion of the match, like what we believe to be pre-injury and how it continued to grow throughout. I thought the connective tissue was so great and that really helped set it apart for me from any other match. Like you had the, like even my wife popped for that uh, Okada tombstone on the entrance ramp and Okada just stepping back like three yeah, steps. that was a cool he spot. Ramp instead of the the rubber mat. Just a great touch. And you, not only did you get final countdown, you got the Rainmaker and the Okada dollars, which you don't normally get in the States. A lot of that has to do with like union rules and stuff. And um, it just, it costs extra just to clean it up. But yeah, this was a mat built for the Smarks for everybody who had been a massive fan and then Excalibur said this was a love letter to pro wrestling and on the flagships instant reaction on on their Patreon Joe Lanza said that he was going to say that this show was a love letter to pro wrestling and I thought everything was just great it connected really well and I do think they have a better match in them but I still loved this I loved it a lot yeah, I, I thought it was, I mean, obviously this was a really nice cap to uh, what was a really cool show, uh, and I think it's a great example of what you get when someone who truly loves pro wrestling is booking a high-level show compared with someone who probably, you know, doesn't have that feeling for pro wrestling in Vince McMahon uh, for the past 20, 25 years uh, when he had the book and uh, was putting his shows together. And, you know, I think he still does pretty much. Um, but, I mean, it, it's a clear difference in style and preferences and theories and everything. It's very interesting, I think, to actually sit down and study it some. Um, but I I personally very much fall down on the Tony Khan side of the philosophy, as I'm sure you do too, uh, from our almost year conversations, which is an insane thing to say. Uh, but this was, um, I mean, this, this was a... a perfectly cromulent uh finish to a, a wonderful night of wrestling this was all-time stuff and i'm thrilled to see where this story can go and what danielson can do next hopefully he doesn't get injured in the next match and that's one of the reasons why he was kept in bubble wrap but one thing that needs to be well, taken another is- reason is that i'm sorry to interrupt but another reason is that he, he says he tore his labrum in the mgf match so I think that explains why he only worked one match in between that and this one. Mm -hmm. One thing that needs to be talked about though, with injuries is yeah, you can call somebody injury prone and they get injured a lot, but John Cena tore his peck on a hip toss. And Danielson mentioned that in the presser. It happens. Like guys can uh, break their necks on the most random spots. It could be a simple German suplex. Whereas Kenny Omega took a tiger driver 91 and it looked like he was dead. Yeah. And ended up being fine. Like it, it's everything's random. And these guys put their bodies on the line. 
like even running the ropes, you could do something. Pack broke his ankle with a baseball slide. It it happens and it's unfortunate, but thankfully it it sounds like a simple broken arm and everything should be fine long term. And I think that's what really matters. Yeah, when it comes to uh, injuries and athletics in general, I think there's basically two kinds of injuries that occur. Um, one is the ones that occur when you're like, it's kind of a cascade of injuries. And that's what people commonly refer to as breaking down. Uh, yeah. And then there's just the, the freak outlier injuries. And the Danielson arm break is 100% an example of that because he just had his arm in a certain position that I guess you don't normally do when you're taking a flying elbow drop and uh, Okada landed on it. And that's that, you know, that's all it takes, man is uh, about 250 pounds flying through the air on your arm at a, at a certain angle. Um, I, I would not call um, Danielson necessarily injury prone at this point. Uh, I think that uh, you, you, you know, with his age, you do have to start wondering, you know, if he is breaking down at some point is the torn labor a result of other injuries contributing to him modifying his, you know, his posture when he's working. Eh, I don't know. I, I haven't exactly done the tape study to look into that or anything. Uh, but this is outright uh, a freak occurrence. And, you know, just be careful when you're using the injury-prone tag because, you know, stuff happens like with, um, I think it was Darius Martin in the top flight that was in the car wreck. And I know that came right after he had previously tore his ACL in a match uh, and it had just returned to action. But, like, you know, a car wreck is not exactly... Uh, a predictable event in terms of someone's athletic performance. You know, that's just a completely random event that happens, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think that's a really good description, but let's move on to, I'm going to say it. It's the greatest match of all time. And they did it again, just over six months later, Will Ospreay defeats Kenny Omega. And I don't have the time, but I believe they went 40, like 42, 43 minutes. Oh, I got and, pulled up here. Um, it went uh, thirty nine fifty. Wow, they didn't even hit forty. I'm shocked. Uh, I did like lazy. that. Uh, they ended up doing a thirty minute call in this match, yes. and to show that hey, we're still we'll still make calls when it's not a time limit draw. And I thought at a certain point, like after the thirty minute call, they were working like they were going to go towards the draw. Yeah, but it got real good, real good. Um nitpick we have to talk about this callus gets kicked out and comes back paul turns yeah. multiple times and does nothing to mm -hmm. me that's a bunch of crap very silly. Um, it makes paul turner look like an idiot it does i can see oh don callus you know comes back and gives the screwdriver they do that spot whatever which callus couldn't get it out of his pants which was <laughs> that was a, funny that was very funny, and that's a clip that can be taken out of contest for the rest yeah, of time. It would be tremendous. But Paul Turner looking at Callis and not kicking him out was, I think, a major disservice to this match, and I think it will hinder some people from calling it from what it truly is, a phenomenal match. But I get it. The screwdriver spot was great. He hits it. And then I, I don't even remember the sequence. I think he hits the tiger driver and you no, know, the screwdriver ends up going into the storm breaker. And then Kenny gets his foot on the, the bottom rope. Mm -hmm. And then eventually Osprey 
hits the V trigger and a one winged angel. And Kenny does a one count kick out. Yes. With everybody thought that was a finish. Nobody kicks out of the one winged angel. And I think the only person to have ever kicked out, not put their foot on the rope, kicked out of the one winged angel was Kota Ibushi. And I believe that was Peter Pan 2011 or 2012. Omega kicked out of it at one. That, that had me jumping out of my seat and they just went to war and Omega gave his last final breaths. You get the tiger driver 91, you get a couple other moves, the storm breaker and it's finished. Oh, was this phenomenal? Yeah, this was an amazing match. When you when you started to say this may be, you know, putting when you started putting this match over so strong, uh, I thought you were going in reverse chronological order. I was like, I thought the Jericho six man was okay. <laughs> I I don't know if Tyler just got a brain bleed. Um, but what what happened here? Uh yeah, this match, uh this match owned just absolutely perfect uh in so many ways. Uh feel free to nitpick the callous thing. You know, I, I can't really zoom in on that so much. You know, it's it's what it is. Um, I I would have done that very differently. I thought the security thing like was just a distraction, like and not like a part of the match kind of distraction. I thought it was just kind of unnecessary um, and didn't add to the match any personally. You know what it felt like? It felt like it was to protect Callus and had absolutely nothing to do with Will Ospreay. Well, and that was, I think part of the storyline, but, um, it, uh, that they didn't do anything with it. You know, they were just like, Oh, he's, he's obviously just using this for himself and, uh, not for Osprey. And it's like, yeah, but Osprey's in the rain working a match. Like no one's hopping the rail to take him out. You know, this isn't, 1968 Puerto Rico or whatever. Um, I don't know, man. This this it, that that part was kind of baffling, but I still love this match. I uh, I broke the scale for this. I went five and a half on it. Um, I, it's my second favorite match of the year. It has the same rating as the Omega Vikingo one, but I have it slightly above that, um, and I have it slightly behind the first uh, Omega Osprey match of the year. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can put those in any order you want. Um, I get why some people might not agree with the, uh, Vikingo rating. That's fine. I just thought it was an amazing match for what it was. Um, and, uh, yeah, like Omega, Omega is legit in my three favorite matches of this year so far. And he's just still like an absolutely top tier worker. I think one thing that's going to get overlooked in this match was at the very beginning, Excalibur had to re-say it because he screwed up the first time. He said this was Kenny Omega's first singles match since the original Winter is Coming 2021. Mm -hmm. What he meant was this is Kenny Omega's first singles match without Don Callis in his corner since Winter is Coming 2021. That, I thought, was a really key line that didn't get enough attention originally, and that should have been the tip-off that Omega was losing. And like with hindsight, you can absolutely see that, but he didn't come out with a second Osprey had callous and the security guards and callous ended up helping with security guards really did nothing Mm-mm. here. I, I, I just think that this was so next level Osprey, basically a role reversal of the Tokyo dome. Mm-hmm. He ends up uh, 
taking the little piece off of the forbidden door or the table that said forbidden door and slams Kenny's head into it. Like it was the table at the Tokyo dome gets him uh, bleeding. Then Osprey goes full blown Muda scale. And I thought to start off the matches, I'm jumping all around, but there's just so much great with this Osprey coming out to elevated again um, to show that, Hey, I am this guy. I, Mm -hmm. I'm not wrestling as a wrestler. I'm wrestling as an assassin and I'm going to kill you. And then Omega coming out to devil sky. Oh, look, this is a show made for smarks made for wrestling nerds like us. And that really set it apart. And then you get an all time bell pop outside of the Cala stuff. Nothing was botched. Nothing was bad. It was all great. And hats off. These two somehow took an all time great match and improved on it. That's legendary stuff. And I would be floored if they didn't have go one, two with match of the year this year, the way things are trending right now. Yeah. I mean, obviously as I ran my knee in my table, just trying to destroy my own limbs, um, obviously, you know, there's half a year to go and who knows if we're going to get a rematch of this before the end of the year, if it's going to be wrestle kingdom or if there's nothing at all. Uh, and who knows what other matches are coming up over the horizon. Uh, but this was, yeah, I mean, this is clearly one of the very best matches of the year. I think if you enjoy, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't can't really fathom how you watch this and are not into it, you know, on a high level, but okay. You know, what can I say? If you don't love this match in some way, shape or form, and I don't mean this as an insult. You don't love pro wrestling. You love something that looks like pro wrestling, but you don't love pro wrestling. This is pro wrestling. This is the apex of all, all the crap that we have to deal with. People making fun of us, people looking down on pro wrestling as a product, all the bad pro wrestling that there is. This is the pinnacle. Stuff like this where you take an all-time great match and you add a bunch of story to it and you build on it and you make it better. I didn't go break the scale. I have never technically broken the scale, but I don't blame anybody who does. I don't have an issue with it. I just have never done it. I went five plus. Yeah, there's always a first time. Yeah. This is the best match I've ever seen. And... I would be floored if Dave Meltzer goes below six stars on this. I think he went six for the Tokyo Dome match. It was either six or five and three quarters. He went high. Mm-hmm. This yeah, he one, went, uh, he went six and a quarter. I would. I think he's going six and a half. That that's my personal guess. This was this this was better than the Omega Okada series, which I think were all great matches, but they the fourth one was the best, but only because the first three happened before it. This one, I think you could do as, 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 as a standalone and it's still better than Omega Okada four. Like I was blown away, standing and pacing, screaming at my television. And my wife is like, what in the world is going on? Um, it was all time. And Osprey in the back, I can't remember what he said, but they caught him with Callus, and Callus congratulated him. He's like, 
all right, that's all I need from you. Like kind of like telling him to go the hell away. I don't, I don't want you around. And now we get to worry about when the trilogy is going to happen. When is the third match happening? Is it the Tokyo dome? Because now Osprey has beaten him and that, that fulfills what he said after January 4th, when he lost to Kenny Omega, he has now beaten Omega. Mm-hmm. Now what happens? How does this evolve? Does this go to Wembley? Do you want to run it back that quickly? Yeah, I mean, you could. Uh, I don't know that you have to, though, because obviously the ticket sales are uh, extremely good for uh, for Wembley. Uh, they don't need to add anything at this point. I mean, if they wanted to, they could run a main event of Nakazawa versus Cutler. Uh, and they won't because that would be tremendously bad business. But, you know, there's no matches announced at all. Um, it's, you know, it's just, it was just really kind of a work of art. It was a tremendous match that I just loved. And, uh, you know, I'm not, this isn't the discussion to really dig into like the flaws of modern day WWE and stuff. But like, I I have actually spent the past couple weeks trying to get caught up on uh, the highlights of WWE of this past uh, calendar year. Uh, or the current calendar year, I should say. And, you know, I, I've watched several matches I liked a lot. I gave the Gunter Mania three-way five stars. I have four different WWE matches sitting at uh, four and a half stars right now. But obviously nothing is in the, the realm of this match because this was just a really unique uh, and special uh, match. And uh, if, if you, you know, I, I just don't know... Like I, I've seen a couple takes online. There's always going to be some, um, just because the, the nature of the internet. You know, you have to say stuff, I guess, to feel. You know, whatever. I don't know. Psychology. This is Reddit's fault. It's Reddit's fault. Let's just call it that. Uh, yeah. Uh, but like, it's it's just like WWE is having a, a pretty decent year. I'm not into all the let's talk. You know, for t- ten minutes in the middle of a Roman Reigns match. I don't need. Ju- Die Jack screaming at uh at uh oh shit uh, Tyler Bate I think it was, no Ilya Dragon I'm sorry uh, and trying to reenact the torture scene from uh, Casino Royale because they think that they're making cinema uh what because a guy screaming at someone else while thrusting a chair into their ribs um I don't need that in my pro wrestling if this match stops so like Osprey could yell at Omega super dramatically for a minute about how Oh, you you told you told me I'd never be on your level. I'm on your level, you know. Like I don't we that's that's the context of the match. That's the story the match is telling. I don't need like someone, you know, like a fourth wall break, stare directly at camera. So the story of this match is, you know, like I, I don't get it. It's something that I've kind of run into in the past couple of weeks, and I guess that's why I'm talking about it now. Of I don't understand this modern thing and uh that feels like very reductive. I, I'm a, I, I, when I'm not watching wrestling, uh, I watch a lot of classic cinema. Um, I like watching movies and I'll tell you in, uh, you pick yourself a classic movie, whether it be sunset boulevards, isn't Kane seven samurai, whatever, they don't stop in the middle of it to like talk to the audience and recap what the story is. You know, it, it's not that, they don't do that. That's not what I, I don't know. It's I, I'm rambling now, uh, but yeah, I mean, I thought this was just an amazing match. It really was. And I'm excited to give it a full rewatch so I can get a little bit more of those nuanced details. 
But I'll say this. Will Ospreay tweeted this about five hours ago. So we're recording this at 3.40 Eastern time. And he posted this at 9.36 Central. Kenny Omega is once in a lifetime. There will never be anyone that will be able to master the craft, craft the way he has. Overcoming him was legitimately the most challenging and yet rewarding task of my life. While everyone can say they're all elite, you can say you're above elite. I thought that was that was great. It's just yeah. gnarmy dickhead Osprey with all the confidence in the world. And he's right. Mm-hmm. Like he dethroned Omega, but Omega is now two and one all time against Osprey. And I think that is something that gets lost a little bit because of that PWG match in 2015. Osprey wasn't Osprey then. Omega no. was Omega. Now, like the current renditions where they're at their peaks, it's one and one. I'm very excited to see what's next. Let's move on here, Fred, because we got to talk about this 10-man tag. The Elite with Eddie Kingston and Tomohiro Ishii defeat the Blackpool Combat Club, Kanosuke Takeshita, and Shooter Umino by Ishii hitting Wheeler Yuta with a brain buster. I loved the finish, and let me tell you why. The elite didn't get the one up on the Blackpool Combat Club, or vice and versa. Wheeler Yuta can keep eating pins. He pinned Omega. Yeah, he pinned Omega at the pay per view. He can lose, and it doesn't really hurt anybody, especially when you lose to Ishii. Ishii, that sounds like a political pin. Plus, it helps build the storyline. Oh, the elite didn't really beat us. They had to bring in an outsider who they're not even really friends with. Um, that he's just a buddy of Eddie Kingston's and Kingston doesn't even like him. So you can kind of continue the story that way. I can't tell you really any spot in that match. Uh, I, my wife was watching with me and she did love the shooting star press off of the apron onto, I believe it was, it was either Claudia or Mox when the, with the bucks holding him up. That was, Oh yeah, that was wild. That was phenomenal. Um, but you had just a myriad of super kicks, a massive chop battle with Eddie Kingston and John Moxley. Oh my God, that was awesome. Oh, Takeshita had some awesome spots. He had a little bit of run with Ishii. Looked he like he got, killed Ishii. Oh, this, this was great. Um, nothing was botched. The only mm-hmm. thing I really didn't like. and There's, There I'm, is one thing that I thought was a slight botch. Uh, was when, uh, during one of the fast sequences, I think it was Nick Jackson sprung up on the top rope to like throw Yuta off it when he was going for the uh, fastball special with Claudio. Mm-hmm. And I, it didn't really look like he made contact with Yuta. Oh, uh, so okay. that was, that was a rare misstep, I think uh, for the bucks. Yeah. The one thing I didn't like shooter, he's got to pick whether he, uh, when he's in these matches, if he is shooter or if he's Tanahashi jr. I, <sighs> You, you you have to pick a direction with him. You you can't keep having him be Tanahashi Jr. in these matches. It doesn't fit the motif. It doesn't fit the style. It doesn't even fit with his team other than he's John Moxley's young boy from the 2019 G1. Yeah. You gotta evolve. Like Even if you want Shooter to be Tanahashi Jr., that's fine. Let him dress in black. Just have black pants. That's it. That's all I'm asking. Have uh, Takeshita buy him a nice leather jacket and teach him yeah. how to wear it. Just come out in black. 
You don't have to change anything else. Just come out in black. Maybe he and Stu Grayson could have traded gear. Because uh, it, it was really weird to me that Stu Grayson came out as part of the Righteous, who, you know, the balloon guy and the other guy are wearing white, and Stu Grayson's still in, like, his Dark Order black trunks. And I'm like, uh, okay, sure. This, this is odd, but okay. Yeah. It, to me, that was the only thing that bothered me. I even asked my wife, like, hey, there's one thing that doesn't belong in this match. And uh, can you point it out to me? Just seeing if she could. Oh yeah. Why is that dude wearing purple pants? He's with guys who are wearing all black. Yeah. Like even my wife who doesn't like professional wrestling notices that stuff. Like that that's super nitpicky. Cause I gave this match five stars. I did too. I thought this was great. It was everything that you want. It kept building a story. You had a little storylines built in. And AEW is so good with these multi-man tags and how they structure them, how they layer in everything. You got Eddie just wanting to kill Claudio. And he even saved Moxley from the Young Bucks trying to super kick him. Like, this this was just great. And all-time stuff. And there was a... Shooter would have worn black pants. Yeah. Uh, there was a point where uh, Moxley was getting hit with a bunch of cheap shots by BCC, and I'm sorry, uh, Kingston was getting hit by a bunch of cheap shots, and uh, Moxley was standing over there and very obviously did not uh, hit Eddie with a cheap shot. But then he laid him out uh, towards the end of the match. Um, so that's uh, that's going to be a big storyline moving forward, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm very curious to see how it all plays out because. Kingston and Mox obviously have a long track record together. Um, we hit the really big stuff, Fred. Mm-hmm. I want to go to Sonata Jungle Boy next. Okay. This match, uh, one, I want to say this. Sonata's music is top tier. It's very good. I love it. Sonata looks like a million bucks. Once he starts wrestling, eh, he's good. There's a lot of people who bash Sonata. I I think some people overrate him, and I think some people underrate him because they're tr- it's almost like the tribalism argument. Like Sonata's over in Japan. He is not over to the level of Okada Tanahashi and Naito, but that's also extremely hard to do. He's over enough, and he's their champion. They trusted him to main event with a young boy in Yoda Suji at their third biggest show of the year in Dominion. He's over, but there's still this missing element with him. But here it didn't matter. It worked. I thought he and Jungle Boy had a good match. You could tell Jungle Boy was nervous. Yeah, very much so at the start, yeah. You could see it all over his face. He was very unsure of himself. And once they got going, this was good. Um, I really enjoyed this. I gave it four and a quarter. The match ending on the moonsault, I thought was odd, mainly because I thought this crowd would have known that the Mudo moonsault is a finisher for him. Mm-hmm. But they didn't, they didn't respond at all. And I thought that was odd. I thought it was uh, kind of oddly timed too, uh, the finish. I thought it kind of came out of nowhere. But I also, we're just in agreement up and down this uh, card. I also went four and a quarter on this. Um, I thought this was a very good match. Um, so I think Sonata's been having actually a wonderful year. Um, 
I don't hear a lot of talk about how good of a year. I mean, now granted, he's been put in a position to succeed over and over as a feature guy and with a lot of matches, but he might be like at the bottom, but in my top 10 on the year right now. Um, I just think he's been working really well. And, you know, there's a lot to say about his charisma or lack thereof. There's, you know, tons of analysis you could do with that. But I will say that I do think this gimmick change and push has uh, reinvigorated him as a worker and looks like it's given him confidence in ring at least. Now, he's still kind of bland as, uh, you know, drying paint when it comes to being charismatic outside of just like, I'm extremely handsome. But, you know, this is what he is, man. I don't know what to say. He seems to be decently over in Japan. I It's kind of hard to evaluate his title reign, and I talked about this some last uh, show with Joel, but, like, you know, when his two title defenses have come against beloved underdog Hiromu and, uh, you know, awesome underdog Yoda Suji, uh, that's not really a great position for Sonata to be in in terms of, like, his reactions. He's he's obviously placed in a position where he should be looked at as the guy the crowd wants to see loose because he's, you know, He's not the underdog. Um, now, if he were to be wrestling someone, I don't know, Naito possibly or someone like that, it would be a very it'd be interesting to see what the reaction would be for him, but that's not what we got so far. Um, I do think that in terms of the U.S., or North America, I should say, since this was in Toronto, Canada, um, that his reactions were, uh, he's not as over in the U.S. as other guys. Uh, and he really hasn't been featured in the United States by New Japan strongly. Uh, Tanahashi, Okada, Osprey, obviously those guys are all more over. I think Naito obviously is. Uh, you could probably argue Shingo is. Uh, you could probably go down a, a bit more on that list before you get snot in terms of like who's over. Uh, I think Minoru Suzuki is obviously much more over in the United States as a New Japan guy. Um, but... You know, uh, I, I can't say he's not a good worker, or at least not doing good work right now. He's been sloppy in the past. As, you know, you can definitely say that. He's definitely laid some eggs, but I don't think he has in 2023. Uh, I've watched, uh, like, his big 10 matches or whatever it is this year, eight, I guess, now. Um, and I thought that, you know, he's been having... I, I've got eight of his matches at four and a quarter or four and a half stars this year, and that's pretty damn good. Um, I don't think I'm going to vote him wrestler of the year or anything, but you know, if I were to vote in the, uh, FSM top 50, like, you know, barring something weird happening in the second half of this year, he would be on that list and he'd probably be in the top half of that list. Yeah, he's been really good. And I think it's less of the in-ring work and more of the positioning and how he's presented. Cause he's, I, I just don't think he's presented to his level, I think he's presented above his level. And to me, I think that's maybe it's nitpicky and maybe it's just the Western thing. Cause Western fans haven't connected with him. Like they've connected with other new Japan stars. Okada is the biggest star in the world. Like the pop he got in Toronto and in Chicago on Wednesday were arguably the two biggest pops of the week. He is a megastar among stars. Mm -hmm. Jungle Boy even got a good pop. Like, yeah, he's, think, he is over. Yeah, like they're both over, but I, th I just think Sonata is not quite on the world level push. 
and that's fine. Not everybody is, but they're making an effort to make new stars. And I think that's great for new Japan. I think that's great. Long-term we'll see how it plays out. He does win with the mood of moonsault and he goes and um, shakes jungle boys hand as jungle boys laying on the, the mat. Then jungle boy walks up with hook hook, raises his hand and jungle boy lariats him to hell. Oh, was this great? This was Not a great only- turn. Not only does Jungle Boy Larry him to hell, he then goes and looks at the crowd like, oh, oh, wait, who, me? And then he gets on it. Yeah, he does the little Tarzan boy arm thing, like mocking the crowd, gets on his knees, absorbs it all. You knew he learned from Christian. This was awesome. And then he looks at the FTW title and he throws it at Hook. And then he's about to exit through the the face tunnel. He's like, no, he goes through the heel tunnel. This was perfectly executed by jungle boy. And the most important part of this turn hats off to Taz. Oh yeah. He nailed this. Taz was phenomenal. He was really pissed at jungle boy. He was upset for his son, but he was upset as like a, a father, but also upset. Not as somebody who's overprotective. He knows hook is going to handle himself. And even said that like hook's going to kick his ass. Yeah, I, I just thought how he did that and that he transitioned out and Shivani transitioned in for the rest of the that show. Was perfect. That was perfect. Like you now have a kayfabe reason for Taz leaving the desk and Shivani mentioned, yeah, Taz uh, uh, stormed out of here. Yeah, he stormed out of here as I was walking to the ring. Like this, the whole thing was great, and we knew the Jungle Boy turn was happening. I'm I was a little, a little surprised it was on this night. I'll be honest. I thought it was yeah. going to take another couple of weeks, but I mean, they did it at the right time. It worked perfectly. I thought they were going to wait until they did a real jungle hook tag run of some form. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they do like a five, six week program with FTR and they challenge for the titles. I thought they would do that first, but you know what? This was great. This was phenomenal. And we can get rid of hopefully jungle boy and just call him Jack Perry, oh. which we should be. This was this was great on so many levels. The turn. Oh, he oh laid that, that clothesline in too. I mean, that was not a, a soft clothesline at all. That was a lariat. So Ko- Satoshi Kojima sitting backstage proud as hell. Oh yeah. A strong arm to that. Um side note, uh I've got the cage match top one hundred uh matches with at least a hundred votes uh, pulled up right now, and I'm just refreshing it occasionally because uh Kenny Omega Osprey is bouncing around on there just a little bit it's currently a forty six all time I just you know you know I like that site a lot, so I just think that's kind of interesting, yeah. But yeah, uh, Jack Perry, I think this could really this could uh, really help elevate him. And it's kind of a big question if it's going to, uh, because I think he's, you know, his charisma as a baby face was like, OK, you know, people got behind him decently. But I don't know that, you know, he really came across as a top starting point. Um, but the, you know, he, he this will be a big opportunity for him and you know I I think that he will do better as a heel especially once he gets comfortable in that role but I I think he has the ability potentially to be like a real jerk of a heel and really get over that way and uh fingers crossed that he does. Yeah. Now I I do have a question for you. Would Absolutely. you pull, would you pull Taz from commentary to have him be Hook's manager for I assume a program that they're going to do with Jack Perry? No. Okay. No. 
Um, I, I think Taz will help Hook. I think that Taz will mentor Hook. But the way they've presented things so far, Taz believes Hook is his own man and is going to let him fight his own battles. And I think that should stay, especially since Team Taz disbanded. Mm-hmm. I don't think you need to bring him back. Now, if Jungle Boy decides to use chicanery and play real dirty, then maybe you do get Taz involved. And I think that could be an intriguing element there. I don't think you have to. I think you do it in the right situation. But right now, we don't have that. But we'll see how things evolve. Okay. All right. Let's jump to the beginning of the show. MJF defeats Hiroshi Tanahashi to retain the IW, sorry, the AEW World Heavyweight Championship. I blended he's my... He's not a champion for an indie promotion, Tyler. Come on. No, he's not. And that was phenomenal. Um, New Japan is an indie on his robe and on his elbow pad said Ace is ass. Yeah. Just what, what a worker, in. man. What a worker. Oh, he comes out and he fake he mocks the guitar and Tanahashi like, like gets him down on the ground and just guitars at him. Just great stuff. And M- so here's where we got to have a conversation. MJF um, decides, nope, I'm not doing it. He's not worth my time. He's leaving like the honky tonk man. But then Hiroshi Tanahashi gets a coward chant going. MJF is supposed to be one step ahead of everybody, right? That's kind of his deal. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's always winning in cheating ways because he's always one step ahead. Why is he getting baited so easily now? Because he's kind of an idiot. Um, he's not as smart as he thinks he is, at least. And, uh, you know, he, he's not like Jeff Jarrett, you know, like a, a full-blown, like, goofball heel. Uh, but I do think that he's uh, very much, you know, kind of in that vein. He's kind of the kind of guy that would, you know, insist that he's not uh not you know that he he doesn't get bothered by people you know the crowd or anyone else but then he gets extremely bothered by them and that just kind of adds up to me for what his character is um so yeah i mean i i get what you're saying but it really didn't bother me much uh it felt extremely on brand for him to to march out and uh you know come back i guess from the walkout i should say now what i really want to discuss with this is uh i you know i've been pretty high on tanahashi's tag matches this year i think he's really looked good um i think uh his best uh you know he he's best served at this point in time in those tag roles uh i think he's actually had two five-star matches both of them tags this year where he probably was the least important member in the ring but still they happen uh but man I am very concerned about him continuing to work this style, you know, the style he's been doing for basically a decade, um, because he he should not be running. <laughs> like, it just does not look good. Uh, and, and the days of, like, an athletic Hiroshi Tanahashi gliding around the, the ring to do sling blades and pop up to the top rope for a high-fly flow and everything, those days have to be over, and he's got to adjust his style. I think he, he definitely needs to move away from the high-fly flow as a regular finisher, and a regular spot in his matches because uh, he just uh, between Saturday night and Sunday night, both nights he uh, did not look good moving. 
Um, and it was, I mean, it's unfortunate because he's one of the best of all time. I think he can still have some mileage left if he is able to adjust his ring style. But uh, these past few nights, he just wanted to do his normal shit and it didn't work. Remember a few years ago when ta- they tried to establish a new like DDT finisher for Tanahashi and it was yeah. so, like disjointed that they never went back to it. I want to say it was something similar to Deadfall. Yeah, uh, I, I kind of remember that. I don't remember the exact move, unfortunately. It, it was some kind of hammerlock DDT, maybe with a leg sweep or something. It was rough, but they only did it once, and it it didn't like the crowd didn't react to it at all. So it was very, very odd. But I'm with you. I think uh, Tanahashi of old is dead and he needs to evolve his craft to stay relevant. And what was really nice about this match with MJF is you can do a lot of those things because MJF loves to tell stories. He loves territory wrestling. He loves to have those elements. And I think that works really well for him. I'm really worried about this G one. Uh, yeah. Dude, Kojima's like seven years older than him, and Kojima moves around ten times better than Tanahashi. I don't think... Okay, so I was thinking maybe Tanahashi's kind of mailing it in because it's getting close to G1 unless it's a big-time match, and maybe he's just saving it. Man, I don't think so. I think he genuinely slipped on the rope on Saturday, and then he worked it into the match because he's just a tremendous worker. That Like, that's Tanahashi... But he can't move, and if you can't move doing the style he does, that's not. You're right; it's not going to work. Yeah, he he definitely has to shake it up somehow. Um, and you know, uh, he's a smart worker. I've always thought he's a very smart worker, but this is continuing to work this way is not smart. And hopefully, he will realize that and you know adjust. I'm sure that that's a very hard thing to kind of come to terms with, you know, because who wants to admit that they're aging, right? Uh, But he he has to. Like, it's just a necessity at this point, and I really hope that he does for his sake and for, you know, so everyone can enjoy him moving forward. Yeah. I still gave this four stars. I thought this was really good. Um, It's hard to be mad about a four-star Tanahashi match, but it's Man, it's just rough. Yeah, I, I went three and a half on it. I thought that they were able to work decently around, you know, his limitations with shtick and everything. But at the same time, like, you know, it's it's pretty apparent what the situation is. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's let's move on here. Let's talk about Punk versus Kojima. And I'm going to give you the floor because my dog is about to eat enough stuffing for like 10 teddy bears. Oh, that's I'm a problem from doing that. This was great, and this, I'm gonna this was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we just need to make uh, CM Punk a heel at this point. <laughs> it's what we need to do because uh, it's obvious that outside of Chicago, I think I I don't think we're going to get any Chicago pops outside of the Chicago area for him. I, I think it's pretty apparent what he what the reaction is going to be to him for a while, and it's going to be a big heel reaction and. I think, uh, you know, he he wants to lean into it. It's pretty obvious, but 
AEW, Tony Khan, they seem pretty convinced that he needs to be a babyface, and I just don't think so at all. I think you just need to embrace it at this point. You know, maybe I'll be proven wrong in the next couple of weeks when he works. I get, I assume all the Canada shows for Collision, uh, but I just don't see it. I, I just can't. After the reactions in Toronto, imagine him going somewhere else and uh, the the response being less of that. Uh, now, obviously, the thing with Punk, and I, I complain about Punk a lot uh, over the past, you know almost a year you know uh but about all yeah we did uh about the fact that he you know is just it was really annoying this constant you know oh there's all these reports on uh on people being mad about punk there's all these reports about punk uh being mad about other people you know there's lawyers involved and it felt like there was just this constant steady stream of information coming from largely the cm punk side um and it was just completely unnecessary because there it wasn't moving forward at all. There was no real new information. It was just, you know, basically uh, CM Punk doesn't see the big deal with this. Uh, and then Dax Harwood being like his Baghdad Bob um, coming out and, uh, you know, trying to do misinformation. I'm still laughing about the, the now de- the quickly deleted tweet from last week where Dax Harwood said, uh, essentially, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, we did it. We handled stuff in the locker room, and I'm like, okay, sure. When you're walking around the '89 WWF locker room at the age of five, you know, like, give me a break. Come on, man. Yeah, I, I appreciate the in-ring work being inspired by classic tag team wrestling and kind of evolving that. Like, that's that's the FDR gimmick. But like, you know, don't act like you were hanging out with Greg Valentine and Don Morocco. <laughs> you know, in 87 or some shit. Like, let's just be real. You know, you're you're a great wrestler. Just just please log off. Please delete the app. It's Twitter sucks. And you're really bad at Twitter in particular. Sorry. Um yeah, I mean this is, you know, just the deal, you know, um CM Punk is great still. He he really is very good at uh, getting reactions. Everyone wants to respond to him in some way. No one's indifferent to him. It's not like he's coming out and uh, there's just crickets, you know. that We ain't talking about, like, bringing it back Big Swole here, you know, or, um, ah, hell, the guy that was with uh, Jurassic Express early on. Um, Marco Stunt. Yeah, Marco Stunt. We're not talking about bringing back those guys who, like, you know, weren't really over that much. Uh, we ain't talking about bringing back Mel here. Um, CM Punk is a difference maker, and he, you know, I think he's a very silly person, uh, but you can't deny the fact that he is over. He's a difference maker for this company, and uh, he he's a star. He's 100% a star. Uh, he's one of the biggest stars in pro wrestling today. He's one of the biggest stars ever. Um and you just can't, you know, you can't not accept that. Now, is, you know, what happens if he blows up again and causes big issues? I don't know. You know, can, you know, how how long does he have to go to be worth it, um, you know, before he, he blows, you know, blows another gasket and just uh, causes massive issues? I don't know, man. I, I don't know what to tell you. But, you know, this is... Just in terms of what he's doing right now, he he is a great, just an absolutely great worker. He's a great personality. And, you know, I don't know that there's no one on the show that's getting the kind of response he is, but it's 
I mean, if they are, they're not surpassing it. I'll say that much. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to evaluate coming off the, the heels of Forbidden Door where everything's a little off just because of how over he is and everything. But, like, come on now. You know, it's just not. He's a superstar, and that's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. I thought this was fascinating for a number of reasons. And this was just two pro wrestlers getting in, having a pro wrestling match. And Punk is loving getting booed. He just loves the best for him. He's getting heat. And he, I think he's going to remind people a lot of late career John Cena. When half the crowd is cheering for John Cena, the other half is like, John Cena sucks. Yeah. I think that's kind of what we're going to be getting with Punk here moving forward. We're going to get some people who are cheering him, some people wanting to boo him, but the reactions are going to be loud every time and it's going to be torn. But that's part of the deal. And this was great. Um, Kojima accidentally uh, hit punk with an elbow drop um on what taz referred to as the yam bag which was a trick <laughs> and, and then followed it up with the gimmick oh yes just, god bless taz just what an absolute what an absolute guy and then punk uh hit him back with uh, something i don't remember um yeah he, i think he, he kind of stiffed him a little bit just as a receipt but uh yeah i mean you know they're workers they're yeah. pros i'm sure kojima that if you no. Like, if you do something like that, you get a receipt. That's how this business works. It's a give and take. Uh, like, I thought this was great. I gave it four and a quarter. Um, they need, I only, they need okay. to finish. Or sorry, they need to put somebody needs to push Kojima. Wasn't he I, the Noah champ this year? Like, did, did that not happen? Am I hallucinating? I haven't actually I watched Noah this, this year, year but. but he was the, recently the GHC champion. Yes, and. Yeah, you have Nagata as the uh, Triple Crown champion. But yeah. I want something sustained with a regular push. He doesn't have to win titles. Just get him wrestling. This guy's still good. Really good. Mm-hmm. I, I understand. I understand why New Japan has, you know, does stuff like the downcycle Kojima and Nagata early and all that um, because they're going to stay around the company, but. You know, they've been there 20 years and they're not like super superstars. So they're not like getting pushed in those situations. I, I get it. Not even a New Japan guy. He works for New Japan. He right. Was a New Japan guy that came mm-hmm. over. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's where he's tied is, you know, his trailer too. That's that's his team now because they pay him the best in Japan. But I, I would love it if uh, Nagata or Suzuki or Kojima just came over for three or six months at a time and, uh, just bounce between, say, Impact and AEW, you know, not any kind of major role, but like, you know, like Kojima works a Rampage once a month, and then he's on Impact twice or something. Like, you know, why not? You know, benefit someone. If they're still doing New Japan USA shows, uh, have them be a regular presence on those. But, you know, yeah. maybe he just wants to hang out in Japan, and if that's the case, well, I guess we're going to have what we're getting with him. You know? I thought one spot that was really cool here was Punk did the Hulk Hogan leg drop. Yes. That was that was pretty good. Did the leg drop, uh, stealing all of Tenzan's moves just to mess with his partner Kojima uh, was really Kojima good. Kojima started hitting the Mongolian chops on him, which was yeah. great. I, I popped so big when he did those back. Uh, that, that was perfect. Uh, just a couple of real pros knowing how to work. I went three and three quarters on this. Um, I, you know, if it 
Yeah, if it had a little bit more, I would have went for. But you know, you're such a hater. Absolutely, yeah, wrestling sucks. Uh, but no, this was cool as hell. So yeah. All right. Um, let's uh, let's move on here. We only have a couple more matches on the main card, so let's go with the Fatal Four Way. And I call it that, even though it's just a four way match. The WWE brain still kicks my ass every now and then. Yeah. Four way for the international title. Orange Cassidy pins Daniel Garcia to win the international title. And this was great. It was, it felt like four people in this match. It didn't feel like there were a couple times where there was just two guys interacting, but so often that they were coming in and out and doing spots with all four of them or three of them. Mm-hmm. And Shibata hits the PK on Daniel Garcia. Orange Cassidy does the edge gimmick where he throws him out of the ring and rolls him up, gets the one, two, three steals the win. This match felt to me more like it was setting up a bunch of future programs rather than just being an end goal for tonight. And I think that's objectively a good thing. I gave this four and a half. And the reason why I gave it four and a half is everything clicked. Everything was really good, really crisp, hard hitting. It didn't feel like a stagnated, like old school fatal four where you'd seen WWE where yeah. people would just be waiting outside that you're going to have a couple instances that's going to happen, but it didn't feel like everybody was just waiting for stuff to happen. And then they pop back in. Like it felt like a real match just with four people and everything was really good. I loved it. I thought this was way better than my expectations for it. I don't have high expectations for four-way matches, period. And I think they did a very good job here. Yeah, I thought this was uh, cool as hell. Um, This was actually my third favorite match of the night. Um, I went four and a half stars on it. I thought it was just really, really well worked by everyone. And uh, I thought Zack Sabre Jr. looked awesome in this. Uh, Actually, I thought he looked just about the best he has all year. And uh, I thought it was a blast. Just, just lots of uh, lots of fun and uh, a strong recommendation off the show. Let's talk about Zack Sabre Jr. for a minute because they screwed up his entrance music. And they did this a couple times throughout the show. Um, he looks at the camera. Where's my theme, you morons? That's the wrong bloody song. What and a guy. Like, oh, um, it's his old school Suzuki Goon entrance theme. Mm-hmm. And the TMDK one is an absolute banger. So little things but this is a smart show big disappointment we didn't get to hear that they also screwed up el phantasmo's music playing the bullet club music instead of his new baby face theme which his new baby face theme stinks his old yeah. bullet club music was great yeah i i can't complain when they play the better song um one other thing since we're just kind of hitting uh random notes here uh we got to talk about bad luck uh tom lawler uh, forget Folly. We got to move this uh, this nickname over because this guy has just really bad luck sometimes. Uh, he was scheduled, of course, to face Adam Cole. I think they announced this that match on this past Rampage, the one show I haven't watched yet. And uh, then on the day of the show, they announced that uh, Adam Cole would come down with an illness of some sort uh, and would be unable to perform. So Tom got shuffled over to the the, the dark match where he faced Serpentico in a five minute match. He won. Um, and, uh, but still like just a total bummer for him. Cause I, th- I think the Lawler is a very good performer and, uh, it's a shame we weren't able to get him on the show somewhere. I get it, you know, and it probably worked out for the best because everyone else got more time. Uh, but 
Yeah, I mean, uh, hopefully we get Tom Lawler in an AEW. I think he would fit in pretty nicely there, um, even if it was just a couple of appearances. I would have loved the match with Adam Cole because it made no sense. Like, the styles, like, styles make fights. Well, super contrasting styles can make a very interesting fight, and I would have loved to have seen that. That would have been really cool. But maybe we'll get that down the line. And I'm hoping that it's just a COVID protocol deal with Adam Cole because they reported that he came he came with a fever, had the flu. Well, I mean, new Japan is last year. They held Hiromu Takahashi out because he came up with a fever, like the day before the show, when he was supposed to fly in that happens. And hopefully it's a bunch of nothing, but good on them for still giving Lawler the payday and allowing him to wrestle a match. And hats off to Sir Penico for being ready to go and giving him a match. Like, yeah, it's a dark match. Nobody gets to see it other than the live crowd, but it yes, does need an element of disappointment from missing out on that. Yeah. Obviously it'll be uh it'll be cool to see. It, it would be cool, I should say, to see if Tom Lawler gets another chance in AEW soon. Uh fingers crossed for him. And also I'm hoping that Adam Cole is doing okay soon. Well uh, you want to just the town. So what's that? He made the town. Yeah, he did. Uh, you want to just kind of run through the rest of the matches real quick. I'll uh, list them off for you, and we'll go through our, our thoughts on it. Yeah, we have one more on the main show, and that was the six-man tag uh, right in, in between the two main events. Uh, the, we There's also uh, – well, there's two on the main show, actually. Uh, but oh, The women's match, you're right. Yeah. So the six-man uh, was the semi-main in, in match order. They were obviously not the second most important card or match on the card. I thought this was fine. Uh, Minoru Suzuki, Jericho, and Sam Guevara against Darby Allen, Sting, and Tetsuo Naito. Uh, outside of an absolutely insane spot where uh, Guevara did a 450 senton through table on Sting, which I can't believe Sting did that. It was a 630, not a 450. Oh, 630. Thank you. Uh, numbers are hard. Um yeah, I mean, this was uh, just an awesome... Uh, that was an awesome spot, but the match itself, I thought, was just completely fine. I went three flat on it. Uh, it's one of those matches where I watch, I'm like, yeah, that was good. Uh, not anything more than that. So, um, You got any thoughts on it? No. Um, I thought this could have been a little better. Um, the presser yeah, gave us more Sting versus Chris Jericho because Jericho comes out in the press room with his baseball bat and flinging stuff around. He actually throws up and hits a water bottle and hits a reporter in the head and actually causes him to bleed. He is okay, thankfully. But Jericho is just livid. He's like, you don't get in, in with my reaction or interactions with Tetsuya Naito. That's between him and I. And he uh, challenged um, Darby Allen and Sting to a tornado tag no rules match as he framed it and said that it was going to be Sammy Guevara and the pain maker and obviously Jer or Sting came out with like uh, it looked like Joker Sting but I think it was an homage and almost like making fun of the pain maker with his how his face paint looked so this could be really really good on Wednesday night yeah that that could be uh, could be fun hopefully it is uh, yeah, next uh, up, we have... oh yeah, yeah. What do you think? I I get why this was on the show. I hate that it was for the AEW Women's Title, not the Strong Women's Title, based on the fact it's Forbidden Door. I thought that was a mistake. 
outside of that, these women worked extremely hard. And I think Willow Nightingale is going to turn herself into one of the best women in the world within the next three, four years. Yeah. Uh, Willow is, is I think a burgeoning star and Tony storm is arguably the best women wrestler in uh, North America or based in North America. I should say uh, there's plenty of options to choose from, uh, but I think it's pretty clear. She's the best in AEW. Um, I, I thought this match was really good. Actually. I, I went three and three quarter on it. Um, I thought it was just a blast. Uh, they really worked hard and laid into each other, and I enjoyed it. You went higher than me. I went three and a half. Yeah, I mean, I think that's perfectly uh, reasonable rating as well. Uh, but it, it did not feel out of place on this card. Um, I think you could probably say that about Athena and Billy Starks, which wasn't a bad match by any stretch, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, like it just felt odd on Forbidden Door. Uh, I don't think it really fit the theme of the show, but what are you going to do? Let's talk about that match because I thought Billy Stark showed herself out really well. She is not ready for TV. She's 18 years old, but hot damn, does she work hard and is she willing to bump? Yeah. Like if this, if you give her time and you nurture her career, she could be a world champion by 22 and lead this division. But th- there's a lot of ifs. There's a lot of variables in between, but potential wise and how she's grown over her time in the Indies, which albeit some of it was really rough, but you got to remember she just turned 18. Like Billy Starks could be a real player in this division. Yeah. I mean, she's obviously got a ton of potential. Uh, there's so many questions about what she's going to do in AW and her progression and everything. Uh, I think it'd be best to hide her in ring of honor primarily for a couple of years, just so she can get some, uh, more experience but i mean i think she could turn into something very good i don't feel like it's a guarantee that'll happen mm-hmm. um i because you know there's just some question marks with her that's all it's not like a knock on or anything but is she able to improve her ring work is she able to improve her presence there's no guarantees there keep um, your matches with people like athena this is how yeah. you growing and developing a young budgeting star and I don't necessarily think it fit Forbidden Door, but I like that they gave her this match in front of a smarky crowd. And I almost feel like this was Tony Khan giving a spot to Billy Starks as almost like a, hey, take a look at her for the strong women's division mm-hmm. as, a, as another way to keep growing her profile. Yeah. Yeah, I think she'll be able to... Uh... Yeah, I, I think it'd be great for her, particularly if she's able to get some more work elsewhere outside of the big AEW picture um, for now. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, since we're on the pre-show, uh, let's just run through the rest of it. We opened with uh, the uh, whatever the hell Swords group is called. I can't think of it now. Uh, with Mobile Brian Cage. Con- yeah, the Mobile Embassy with uh, Brian Cage, Khan, and Toa Leona against best friends, Rocky Romero and El Desperado. I laughed very hard when Desperado was told to or invited to be part of the uh, the all the hands in with the best friends and just like dramatically sighed to himself. That popped me pretty good. Uh, I thought this was Hog too was great. Yeah. Uh, Desperado is a gem. Uh, I thought this was pretty good, but not great. Uh, very good. You know, solid work throughout, I thought. Um, I, I'm high on the Gates of Agony, and uh, I think that they could be a really great powerhouse team moving forward. Uh, but, you know, um, 
Swerve hit the diving foot stomp on Rocky. I do have to say we need to figure out a way for Swerve to make that move look like it actually hits because mm-hmm. the last couple of times I've seen it, it's clearly him landing next to the guys and you know, they need to make it not look like that. But you know, what what are you gonna do? I give this three and a half. I want to see Brian Cage in more multi-man scramble types where he just gets to do cool shit. I mean, that is the Brian Cage MO, so. Just let him do cool shit and don't let him do anything else. That's all he should do. Yeah, he he doesn't need to do more. He just needs to come in and be like, I'm the muscle guy that will flip around a little bit and please allow me to do that and then I'll go, you know, rest up on the apron a little bit. He's He's a less advanced Jeff Cobb. And, uh, you know, you just need to accept that and use him like that. That's okay. Uh, I still think he's pretty decent in that role. Uh, I also went three and a half on this. I went three on Athena Billy Starks, just so we have numbers out there. Uh, Stu Grayson and El Fantasmo. I thought this was a little bit of a disappointment. Um, I like Stu Grayson a lot. I like Fantasmo's work a lot. And um, I can't say fully that this was like a coasting El Fantasmo because I have seen El Fantasmo coast in New Japan several times. Uh, and it didn't quite look like that, but this was just, I think, too short to really hit a high level. Um, but, you know, it's it was still okay. It went three and a quarter. Uh, I thought it was pretty good, to be honest, but not particularly memorable. I went three and a half. I, I really liked it. Um, ELP looks like the long-lost Paul brother. Like He really he, does. Logan and Jake Paul, he just looks like he fits in. And I think that really fit the motif of his scumbag new Japan character here. I don't know what his new character is going to be. We're going to have to see how that develops over the course of time. Cause it's is very new. Just got kicked out of bullet club. Yeah. And we'll see, but I, they have big plans for EOP. They like him a lot. I think he's awesome. And uh, I just hope that he continues to progress and we get less of like, I'm just half-assing it. El Pantasmo because he's too good to be doing that so often. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've seen way too many Elf had Tazimo matches where it's just him just like, yeah, you know, this is like the third match on the card. I don't have to try. And it's, I get yeah. it, but at the same time, I, I wish it wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. And then our last one on the pre-show was uh, Luis and Gobernables, Bushi, Hiromu, and Shingo against United Empire, Jeff Cobb, Kyle Flesher, and TJP. Good match. I thought this was a nice little match. Three and a half stars. Uh, some pretty good work in it. I wish they would have given these these guys like 15 minutes. Oh, that would have been fun. Hiromu was extra today. Yes, he was. Extra Hiromu, and I loved it. I thought it was just a really energetic way to try and sell the show. They did pin an IWGP Tag Team Champion uh, in TJP, a junior tag team champion, excuse me. But this this was fun. They obviously weren't going to beat Fletcher. They weren't going to beat Shingo, and they wanted to give Shingo a win, and he got the win. This was very good. I gave it four. Um, just great work, high intensity. And I love how Shingo beat TJP with a half made in Japan, half um, last of the dragon. It wasn't quite either one because he lifted him up for the main Japan and then like lifted him up more, but not quite over the head and bada bing, bada boom. That was the end. Just really good, really good. And I like how they combined a full match um, pre-show with the style of hey we're all we're just gonna do like one match and then have Renee and RJ City talk. I think they blended it really well. Yeah, um, I liked it. It was fun. 
Uh, if it was longer, I would have been much higher on it. But yeah. All right. A um, couple things that uh, need to be mentioned, including questions from the Discord. Um, one thing we didn't mention with uh, the Danielson Okada match, Fred, the fake seizure, the convulsions. Yeah. We, we forgot to talk about that. And personally, I thought it worked. Um, I don't necessarily get offended by that kind of stuff. Like, my best friend has epilepsy. Um, I've also been lucky enough to never see him have a seizure. So I, I guess maybe that would impact my viewpoint a little more if I had seen that happen. But with Danielson's injury history and how things have been kind of going, doing that little bit, people hate it. I just don't care. I thought Okada's like, nah, F this, and then tries to rainmaker him, and then it's Danielson playing possum. I thought it worked in the match. I just don't I prefer they not have it. I just don't care. Yeah, I'm basically with you. I think it brought the vibes of the match down. I think it took the crowd out of it for a little bit. Um, and probably I understand why they did it. I think that was may have been how Danielson was like able to get the doctor in the ring and tell him about his arm, assuming that's all legit and not at work. Um, which I mean, Danielson's a pro wrestler, let's be honest. Um, but I thought it was, uh, you know, I, I would have preferred it to not be in there, but I'm also my hackles are not up. Yeah, it's it's fine. Um, all right, two questions from the Discord, then we're going to take off. All right, Diego Garcia asks with Orange Cassie now being at 25 defenses. Who would you pick to beat him now? His picks are Jay White and Kanosuke Takeshita. I would have gone with Swerve a couple weeks ago. Uh, I thought that was the move. I thought the timing was right. Uh, he's been a workhorse. And I I wonder if they're setting up for a guy like Zack Sabre Jr. to maybe beat him at All In. That's a... Yeah, I do wonder about that. Um I don't know. I mean, at the end, um, Shibata extended his hand or Orange Cassie, the backhanded bump. But then he actually went in and really shook his hand, which I thought was a really nice sign of respect. Yeah, Uh, I thought, you know, I could see them playing into the Shibata thing more, but they don't seem to use him very much on the main roster. Um, And... um, so I, I don't think that they're going to put the ti- that title on Shibata. I don't really think they're going to play into that more going forward. Uh, both both uh, Takeshita and uh, uh, Swerve are good options, or Jay White are good options, I should say. Swerve, I think, has been pushed really weird this year, and I, I don't get it at all. I thought he was actually pretty yeah. hot in January. and It feels like they don't really actually have anything for him. Yeah. Well, another good option for this title is Miro. Yeah, Miro would be a good one. Um, yeah, from Collision, where he basically disavowed God and his wife. I, I don't remember the exact wording. You'll have to go look at it, but he basically just buried everything, and he's going to come out and just be a murderous rampage. Like That could be really good, and have him, like with his, what his TNT title run would be, he could work every week, and like Orange Cassidy's been doing, and just do elongated squashes and kick ass. Like that'd be fun as hell. Yeah. Uh, he, he's able to sell enough where he's it's believable. Miro is. Um, so I think you could still have pretty straightforward, high quality matches with him. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there's more options on the roster, obviously. Um, 
I just don't really see it. It's been such a long reign and there isn't such an obvious next champion that I really do wonder who it's going to be. That's going to be a really interesting one to keep track of. And I think he'll get one more at least because I think they'll have him pass Jade uh, at like for total defenses, but it's going to be really uh, curious to see how they handle this throughout the rest of the summer. I don't think he has it a full calendar year. Because he won it in Toronto, August 12th. Sorry, October 12th, 2022. So that yeah. will be the one-year mark. Last question from Evil Trident. Contrast the style of the eight-man collision main event and the BCC versus Elite 10-man. Both were great, but both were totally different in pacing and style. The collision match seemed an outlier for AEW multi-mans. And his specific question is, was that time allotted? And I want to get your take on this, Fred, because it was much more of an old school, almost like a Southern style multi-man tag. Yeah. Um, I think that it's very much playing into the, the strengths of those workers. Um, I think the elite in particular, but I also think, uh, you know, like Moxley and Claudio works this style pretty well. And I think Yuta does too. The fast paced, uh, you know, sequential big spot matches uh, that plays well into what they can do. Um, I think FTR does pretty well at like a slower pace. I mean, they can go at a higher pace, don't get me wrong, but I think they're more natural at kind of uh, something you would see out of 1991 uh, WCW, like a highlight match from there. Um, And uh, I think that kind of just fits them. And CM Punk is, I mean, let's face it. I mean, CM Punk, I don't think he's shot by any stretch. Don't, don't get that wrong. I think he's still good in the ring. Uh, but CM Punk is uh, in his mid-40s. You know, he's 44. He, uh, the athleticism, you know, was never a strong point to begin with. Uh, so, you know, at 44, obviously, what he has had has waned some. And he's a guy that definitely relies more on uh, intangibles and psychology and thinking aspect of wrestling rather than just like, Hey, look at me do 15 uh, cool moves in this match. Um, so I think it just w- depends on who is in the match and, you know, how they plot it out to their strengths. And I think both, both styles in those cases worked well to who was in the match. Yeah, this is, I think that's a really good way of explaining it as my brain kind of uh, trails off as I've been doing audio all day. Oh, I feel you. I, I really think that that style, like you said, catered to the people. And yep. it's also catering to a story. There really isn't a story uh, built up deep yet with the eight men in that collision tag. There is with Blackpool Combat Club in the Elite. And I think that's a lot of the difference. There is so much bad blood and a lot of really deep storylines like Eddie Kingston, Claudio Castagnoli is like almost 20 years. Yeah. Those elements, I think, bring an extra level of intensity, a level of hatred, a level of physicality where you're not going to get that in the collision tag. And that's because of what it is. Now, if you were to flip them storyline wise, I think you're going to see a lot more of what the BCC versus elite was. It, I think it worked great for what it was and what the story currently is. And as that evolves, I think you'll see a uh, shift towards a little bit more of the BCC elite stuff, but they're still going to have that methodical style storytelling because that's just what those guys are like the FTR CM Punk, Jay white, they're methodical style storytellers. And 
I think you're going to continue to see that in those matches, but I think you'll see the physicality uptick moving forward. Yeah, as it uh, grows in heat, I think it'll increase along the way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it really does come down to just who's working and what works best for them. Yeah, and Fred, that's Forbidden Door. Yep. Anything else that you you can think of or any final thoughts for the show? Not particularly. Uh, I, you know, I think it was just a great circumstance, uh, a great event, I should say. And uh, circumstances worked out really well for it. They were able to avoid major injuries in the lead up to it. Hopefully, uh, Adam Cole and Brian Danielson and anyone else that was banged up on the show. I don't think anyone really was. There was a scary spot where uh, Sting took a uh, flying cutter from Sammy Guevara that it kind of hit the top of his head. But he is apparently just fine. I mean, the fact that he got up from the uh, senton through the table and was immediately able to continue working was pretty promising. Uh, but yeah, I mean... Uh, I think I'm very excited to see where things go from here. Uh, I think they handled the transition from uh, regular AEW to Forbidden Door mode AEW pretty well, and hopefully they'll be able to handle the transition back uh, just as well. Yeah. It, look, this, this is towards the beginning half of what's a phenomenal potential summer for AEW and now we get the G1 coming up in a couple weeks and I cannot wait in the meantime, we will have our normal show on Thursday, ready to go, talking about the fallout from the show and the build to all in. But until then, make sure you like and subscribe the show on YouTube and whatever podcast uh, platform that you listen to to make sure that you get all the episodes up to date. If you are listening on the Voice of Wrestling podcast feed, thank you very much. Please consider subscribing to our own, The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry to help us continue to grow. We at one point were top five in the country of Turkey. We would like to be number one. And that is only available with your help. So thank you very much. You can follow the show on Twitter at GoodBadHungi. You can follow me on Twitter at TheRealForno. All of my work at VikingsWire.USAToday.com and on my YouTube channel, Vikings First in School. You can follow Fle- Fred at Flagrant Wrestling with an R not a W because Ted Turner, woo, woo, and you can also subscribe to his Patreon, which is in the show notes. is currently on pause, but it will be coming back soon with a deep analytical look at the world of professional wrestling. Thank you very much for listening. This is the final countdown. Have a good one, everyone. Hey, everybody. My name is Jesse Collings, and I want to tell you all about my show, The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. On The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, we do a thorough analysis on the biggest issues and trends within the pro wrestling industry. We talk a lot about pro wrestling media, we talk a lot about fan culture and wrestling's place within general pop culture, and we talk about the broader influences that are shaping the way we discuss and analyze the pro wrestling industry. We've had some of the brightest minds in the pro wrestling intelligentsia on the show, including WrestleNomics host Brandon Thurston, both Rich Kreich and Joe Lanza from the Flagship Wrestling Podcast, Trevor Dame from the Through the Years Podcast, and a whole lot more. This isn't a show for hot takes. It's not a show recapping the latest episode of television. 
This is a show focusing on the biggest topics in pro wrestling and doing a deep dive on the real stories behind the surface level analysis you might find elsewhere. The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a try. Thanks.